0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast episode 444. How are you all doing? I hope you're well. We got an amazing episode this week. I'm joined by Haley Campbell who I've known for a while but this was the first time we'd kind of chatted. All our interactions have been over either over social media or text yet She's one of the people I've felt the biggest instant connection with. I'm a fan of her writing. We've got very similar senses of humour and points of reference. So, so when I saw she had a new book coming out called All the Living and the Dead, I was intrigued. And the publisher sent it out and it blew me away. It's a it's kind of the, the documenting of her personal investigation into the death trade told through the amazing, remarkable people who deal with it on a day-to-day basis. But we get into all of that. Um, You're going to really enjoy this. It's a hell of an episode. We did a a sex and death special many years ago, early days of the podcast, that was really popular. And I think this is going to have a similar effect. And I think you're going to be rushing out to get this book. Because at the time of recording, I'd read a few chapters but was excited to have this conversation and the book just gets better and better and better so this conversation intrigues you honestly what's ahead is amazing people that come up in conversation here um Neil Gaiman go and check out the previous episode with Neil Gaiman he's been tweeting about the book he yeah he's been raving about it and rightfully so um Alan Moore also comes up in this episode go and listen to the episode I did with Alan Moore there's loads of re- really good people I've had on in the past, so plenty to go and, ch- and check out. As ever, we're brought to you by com, where you can go and buy my merch. You can head over to patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip if you want to support there for like a dollar a month or whatever. And you can head over t- to twitch.tv forward slash scrubiuspipyo to watch me d- dicking about on the regular on Twitch. And I'm having loads of fun over there. The content is flowing over there at the moment, so if you want a load of f- free content, head over. It's a weird one because it's one of them where it's always if if an acting gig comes in or whatever else, I might not be be on for a month or two, but at the moment, believe me, it's flowing over there. so head over and check that out and let's get into the episode shall we? This is the distraction pieces podcast episode four hundred and forty four with the glorious Haley Campbell. this piece of is the this piece of is the right I'm joined today by hayley Campbell how are you Hello I'm good thank you for having me I'm excited to have you on and right at the start I want to put your mind at rest and any PR people's minds at rest I do definitely want to talk about your book because it's blowing my mind at the moment but as I was doing all my prep. I had all these questions about death. And then I thought, we've known each other for like six or seven y- years now. I've been, been saying I need to get you on the podcast. We've never actually spoken. We've had all our oh, no. communications over <laughs> Twitter or text. So there's loads of things I want to talk about aside from the book as well. So, you know, we'll we'll dance around a little bit. Um, okay. The first and most important thing I want to discuss is Domino's slash pizza <laughs> takeaway delivery. Um preferences <laughs> rules you know how many how early is it acceptable to order a takeaway because uh-huh. that again that was a big chunk of our, our starting of communicating was it was kind of confessing how early we've ordered p- takeaway that day uh, w- w- one of the questions i've got is is it ever acceptable to order two different takeaways in one day one day i absolutely so, yeah. have yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah. I, I mean i have written a book about death but i think these are the big questions <laughs> exactly. that need to be answered That's That's I, I, I have figured. to i have to say like i have been a big fan of dips for a mm. long time yeah. especially the uh the garlic dip that comes with the the dominoes yep. but recently i have been cheating on it because i've discovered paul newman's ranch dressing which is oh, like really? the posh version of that and now i get the dips from dominoes and I, I can't throw them out because it feels bad. So I just yeah. collect them in my fridge.
0: I do exactly the same. I, There's like I, a dozen the, of them. The only thing in my house that, that I regularly check the sell-by dates and throw out are Domino chips. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in my cupboard is w- way past its date, but because they're in the top of my fridge, I go, "Oh, no, that's out of date. I'll keep that one." But yeah. Dips out of the cupboard, take away and then dips out the cupboard. How 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 the other... <laughs> oh, yeah, disgusting. This is amazing. That's a hell of a...
1: I would say that uh, in regards to two takeaways in one day, I think you can do that, but you can't order two Dominoes in one day. You can order like a Chinese and then a Dominoes, but mm-hmm. you've got to you've got to vary the countries, preferably just vary the, the restaurant see, really. But- I've,
0: I've noted it as kind of on any rules and options and kind of boundaries all bets are off if it's a sunday <laughs> because if it's a sunday i'm happy to order a domino's as soon as they open if i'm in that kind of mood i'm happy to order yeah and it and if i've kind of had a lunchtime slash breakfast takeaway an evening one is barely related to that yeah, these exactly. two things aren't really associated
1: did i tell you about my problem when i was cheating on domino's with foretza uh, which used to be a great company as and has recently gone downhill. I say recently; right. it's been in the last five years. But I keep checking to make sure they're still bad. Yeah. And like their delivery driver, you know how it says the delivery driver's name on the receipt. Mm-hmm. The delivery driver is always the same guy, and his name is Hubris. And I wonder, <laughs> is this a joke? Yeah. For me.
0: Yeah, that's that's astounding. I love the the willingness to persist and give bad takeaways another try because I've been exactly <laughs> there there's a there's a pasta place older from sometimes and the pasta is really good their desserts are really good I'm a big starters and sides and desserts guy um on making my decisions but honestly five or six times in a row they m- missed something off my order mm-hmm. and I'd complain be furious and the next time I go <laughs> well I fancy it. let's give it a go and then i would miss something again I'm like what am I doing why am I going back I'm like an, an abused partner kind of just yeah, yeah. there's an element of self-loathing and going again. back
1: which uh, I think is healthy yeah. a, a, a small a small bit of self-loathing I think is a healthy thing to have um, and it definitely <laughs> comes out with the going back to the abusive takeaway place
0: Yeah, and I I think this kind of plays a little bit into the next thing I wanted to talk about because I think one of the things that we connected on in those early days is we're both people who aren't necessarily always in a rush to to socialise are both perfectly (laughs) comfortable in our own company. And it was only when kind of uh, prepping for this, I found your article from from 2017 the the pursuit of loneliness and found the intention behind it so mm-hmm. talk about that a bit your kind of intentional choice to go look I want to be not not necessarily just the joking I want to be alone but I want to be comfortable alone and I want to be you know yeah find my own space
2: Well,
1: I am comfortable alone. How much did you love lockdown? Like, you're not allowed to say you loved lockdown, but I miss it. I miss walking the street. Like, you used to get that. uh, I got that in the early days after I'd left my full-time job when I was newly freelance, that buzz of walking down the street when I know that everyone's in school or everyone's at work and you can go to the cinema alone. I
0: was going to say, another thing I've got noted on that is daytime (laughs) cinema because that was another kind of... Again, I've, I can't remember the last... Even pre-lockdown, I can't yeah. remember the last time I went to a busy s- cinema and an hour where other people are going to be there. That seems ludicrous to me. I huh?
1: know. Like the idea of going to a <laughs> cinema when there's something like, uh, you know, the, the Prince Charles cinema puts on amazing movies. Yeah. And I would love to go see them. But unfortunately, they also invite enthusiasts who like to sing along and uh, even worse, quote along with like the big Lebowski. And
0: engage and be part of it. Yeah.
1: And like when you're watching a movie, you're on receive. You're not on transmit. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I don't trust people. To just sit and be. So, yeah. uh, I think other people might be freaked out by a, you know, empty cinema. Why are you putting this on for me? But I love it. I love it so much. Absolutely. I like cafes when there's hardly anyone in there. Lockdown was funny because, you know, when everyone thought it was going to be three weeks or something, everyone was like, "I'm going to write my novel. I finally mm-hmm. got time." And I was like, "Okay, I've been living the life that you people think you're about to live. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to write the novel." you're going to order Domino's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to do nothing. And I just watched as everyone went crazy after about three days. They're like, I can't stand this. I can't stand my own thoughts. I quite like it. I, you know.
0: Yeah. I Genuinely, I I had a productive lockdown because number one, I said I'd kind of been living that life anyway. But number two, because the cinema's closed so genuinely <laughs> I was like oh that's normally my excuse because I kind of see it as work anyway because yeah I'm an actor now and I'm writing it's like well I'm studying I'm doing research but when they actually closed it was like it's only so many things I can pretend I'm enjoying on Netflix exactly um, and so many things I'm completing because I'm a completionist rather than because it's good <laughs> like well need to get to the end of that like, it's become a chore Stop it was it. like
1: it was like a, a grand plan orchestrated by my publisher to make me finish the book because yeah. i couldn't i couldn't go to the cinema and i couldn't go to the gym so i was stuck in the house and um yeah i, I was surprised at how much people didn't like it Mm. because I just found it... it was, I was essentially living the same life. I just didn't have to come up with excuses for not leaving the house anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, an ex- example of how much I enjoyed it is that, I mean, it is true that my parents are both kind of high risk, but I've still not really broken lockdown. <laughs> and, and <laughs> Me that neither. Has, that has become my kind of... I'm like, look, partly, <laughs> again, I do think, to 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 get briefly serious, I think the UK and America have handled it appallingly. Mm-hmm. and. I think anyone who has friends or people in other countries who can tell you how the rest of the world is perceiving us kind of really sees the bigger picture of how we've fucked it up for everyone um (laughs) but um I still don't really feel we should be going out as much as we are but again I'm not one to to bang on about it either but yeah a hundred percent so many of my mates are like inviting me to things now. I'm I'm glad that I'm like well I don't want to, but also I wouldn't want to be jumping into things quickly. I I didn't come out prior to all this. Can we all remember (laughs) our
2: relationships?
0: (laughs) We were never hanging out in pubs. Don't don't make it the illusion that we were.
1: I'm talking to you right now from a cupboard in my house, which is where I have been broadcasting on the BBC since February 2020. And others have gone back to Broadcasting House, but I haven't. No. And no one has so far asked me to, so i'm not I'm not volunteering, yeah, because right now I've got a cat in the cupboard, he's yeah. snoring away. It's nice, I don't have to go on the tube, I don't have to go in the building where I always get stuck in those revolving doors. I just get to stay here in my pajamas, yeah, and I don't understand why that life isn't amazing to other
0: yeah. people, yeah, I completely agree um the The only issue I've had recently with the return to daytime cinemas is. As an easy example, I'm a big fan of, of the Sing movies. I think they're genuinely w- wonderful. Um, I had Garth Jennings on and spoke to him about how he allowed me to enjoy all the obvious shit that is in <laughs> X Factor and all that kind of thing. But I can't enjoy the emotional cues in that because I know it's all so contrived. But this isn't fucking animation. Of course it's contrived. So mm-hmm. I'm allowed to get in on all the, the simple <laughs> emotional hits. But daytime cinema is always great you know hopefully on your own maybe one or two people it starts to get weird when those one or two people are children um and you feel like the weird creep who's in it. i literally I well, saw sing well i don't a have two. a beard you've a got little, a beard yeah, so yeah. you know it's it's far cre- a, a creepier i, I saw a sing 2 a few days ago and i got in literally no one in there i was like yeah, yes <laughs> and then gradually little groups of four or five like brothers and sisters came or to ruin your life started to appear with their parents i'm like oh man now <laughs> and the fact that i was the one in there on my own first like i've really <laughs> like i've got there early and yeah so that was that was an issue um speaking of gyms also being closed again i was kind of going through our kind of our interactions over the years and having a look at what we discussed and a big part of it has been Gym stuff and pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> it's
2: <laughs> Which, a very again, healthy relationship. A wonderful, I think.
0: relationship. <laughs> I think. But can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with fitness, with kickboxing, and things like that? Because I think from my, I've, I've got an awful memory, but from my memory, you were similar to me that you weren't particularly into any of that until a certain point, and then were really into it. So, whilst I don't train anymore in any any martial arts, I'm a huge fan of MMA. I'm a huge fan of Studying these things but again as a kid I was not the fitness kid I was the the metal kid, the the drugs Same. kid the anything else mm-hmm. kids and then it wasn't until I was in my like 30s that I was like oh man I wish I'd been doing all of this all along because I'd be far <laughs> less achy and broken if exactly. I'd taken any care of my body over that time so yeah what was your relationship with with fitness and with martial arts
1: it sort of started um after I had written my first book Uh, the art of Neil Gaiman and when when you write a book there's a lot of sitting down so at the end of that when I handed it in I realized that I got quite chunky Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: I just felt uncomfortable in it so I went to the gym and said you know help I don't know what I'm doing I don't know what any of these machines are I would have been late 20s probably and um I got a personal trainer who was like the boxing guy. And I hadn't signed up to do boxing necessarily. That's yeah. just what he did. And so he put gloves on me and then he, we were punching. He would hold up pads and it was kickboxing. So he was he was a little guy, this little Romanian guy called Chris. And so whenever he held up a pad to do a high kick, it wasn't a high kick really because he was so little but it felt amazing that i was kicking this pad above yeah. a guy's head it just felt great and i got super into it and it got to the point where i was you know i was re- i loved sports writing i don't love watching sports so much but i love boxing writing like mm-hmm. norman mailer's the fight is yeah.
2: Yeah, a, yeah 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 norman
1: mailer is a strange dude but his book the fight is extraordinary i love yeah. the the poetry in boxing writing so i was reading Completely. a lot of that and then, um, you know, I, I always use my job as a journalist just to uh, exploit my interests. And you can see, you can, like, if you look at the things I've been writing about, you can go, well, she was super into that thing for yeah. about six months there. And she was yeah. super into that thing. And um, I, I was going to say, into...
0: we'll get on to the, the constant overhanging of death in, in your career <laughs> and writing. <laughs> we'll get to constant, that. But yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but I went to Brighton to interview Chris Eubank Jr. Right. And I just watched him train for like three hours, and um, then I interviewed him in the middle of the ring, which wow. is an intimidating thing, mm-hmm. even if you haven't seen chris Chris Eubank Jr. fight yeah. like he's he looks fighty, yeah. and um <laughs> he was wearing his uh his sparkly shorts. And He still had his um, wraps on. And uh, I just loved writing that. And um, I, I kept training, kept doing all of that right up until lockdown. And then I've, you know, I've got an exercise bike in the house. I'm kind of creeped out about everybody's sweat in the gym because that was something I liked. I love old gyms that stink. yeah. And I love it when you see um, the kind of old men you only see in Pumping Iron, the movie, yeah, wearing those shorts that you can't buy now. Yeah. You know, the little, little short shorts. I used to love watching. There were two old guys in my gym who used to train together. One was Polish, the other Italian. Neither really good at English, but that's what that's how they communicated to each other and to other people across the gym. Yeah. And I just loved the culture of it. Like, um, I went to L.A. and one of the first things I did was go to Gold's Gym because that's where Arnold trained. Yeah. Yeah. And I just loved seeing all the 70s pictures on the walls. I just, the whole culture of it is interesting to and me.
0: Genuinely, as a squirrel. As, as- scrolling back i found one disappointed message from you after a gym visit because it was around it was in that christmas kind of period or the uh-huh. year and you were disappointed because there were no dads in the gym that day and it's, it <laughs> no been, dilfs <laughs> no dilfs it had been a letdown of a visit because <laughs> oh man i had a good workout but i didn't have anyone to look at and study and watch but again that i love that that comes into something of a of a journalistic element there that anything you're doing you want to also be kind of Studying something, like, in, in as least creepy, creepy way as possible, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, I sound like a pervert there. <laughs> but, yeah, I always found that Father's Day was the worst time to go to the gym. What's the point? Because all the dads had to stay home and have pancakes made for them or whatever.
0: 100%. It's, it's, sports writing is really interesting because it's such a fine balance. Like, there's things like the fight, or a, a mate of mine, Moose is a group, like, when he writes about sport... In both of them, I'd rather be reading this than watching the event that they're talking about. But in so much sports writing, even quite good, if it's not got that beauty and warmth to it that these unique characters add, you're kind of reading, going, "I want to just put this on. I want to watch this on." <laughs> I, and I, then you, I you said you years do watch ago it. <laughs> that sports books sh- should have. Now we're in the smart, you know, future. They should always have an easy link t- to watch the particular. F- moment of football they're talking about the particular moment of a match yeah yeah you should be able to bring that up instantly
1: you should and and when you do see the fight that you've just read this amazing story about sometimes you go i don't know how they saw that in this because it's just a guy hitting another guy
0: someone had a word count
1: (laughs) 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 and a thesaurus well done
0: so the (laughs) the final thing before i promise we will get on to death i know it's all you want to talk about (laughs) um before we get on to that I want to talk about kind of. I mean, you mentioned Neil Gaiman there, growing up around comic book legends, including your dad, who who we'll get on to. But friends of the podcast. I've, I'm trying to stop using the term friends of the podcast because I'm starting to get really j- j- jealous of how more popular my podcast is than me. My, po- <laughs> my podcast. There's more friends of the podcast than my own friends, but. But Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman are two that I would put on my actual friends list. So they're good ones. Yeah. How was it, kind of growing up or having periods of your life around and exposed to these people that, for so many people, were a mystical name on the front of a book? You know, on the on on the front of this book that was their childhood, that framed so much of their thinking. These weren't necessarily just mystical names to you; they were friends or even a parent (laughs) yeah well more
1: like weird uncles Um, yeah
2: yeah.
1: well it does give me a different view on them because i um when i moved to london i ended up working in a comic book shop for years and years and seeing everybody else's idea of who neil gaiman is or who alan moore is or even who my dad is yeah you go that's not them like alan is a wizard but he's not scary (laughs) Alan Alan <laughs> yeah. and Neil and my dad are all those guys who are really, really good with kids. Right. And, you know, when, when I was I first met Neil when I was six, and he read I he he had his laptop with with him. It was the first time I'd ever seen a laptop. I was like, what is this magical machine? And he read The Day I swapped my dad to Goldfish which was his first children's book to me. He wow. was testing it on me. I was a test subject. And um, I loved it because I was already a fan of Sandman at six. <laughs> there was one issue in particular, A Dream of a Thousand Cats, that my dad had given to me because I like cats. And so I loved that. And I've been friends with Neil ever since. You know, I used to write him letters and emails. And when he'd come into, when he'd come to town uh, on his tours, we'd we'd meet up and I've kept doing that. And I'm now in my mid-30s, still do that. Alan is, you know, he was, he looks like a wizard, but for children, he will do magic tricks for yeah. them. You know, that thing where you, you do your thumb and then you can move your thumb and it yeah, looks like yeah, your yeah. thumb is coming off. When Alan Moore does that to you and you're a kid, it is the most mind-blowing thing you've ever seen. Yeah. And when I worked in the comic shop, I loved it when people would bring their kids with them to a signing because Alan would be talking to, you know, he's very gracious, would be talking to every fan, giving them the time that, they want while he was signing their books. But as soon as a kid turned up, everybody else in the room disappeared. So he could talk mm-hmm. to this, this one kid. And, um, we would always have a plate of biscuits on the table when Alan came, cause he likes biscuits. He <laughs> munches them all through the, all through the signing. But there was a kid there and you know, he was, his eyes were like eye level with the table. And he was just looking at the biscuits, the plate of biscuits. And Alan leaned forward to him and said, uh, which one would you like? And um, the kid picked up a bourbon and he goes, yeah, yeah. Alan says, yeah, yeah, because the the custard cream is sort of the anemic cousin of the bourbon, (laughs) isn't it? And the kid's... Kids agreeing, yes, as if he knows what anemic means. One hundred (laughs) percent. But
0: all like there
1: were were nerds and fans and stuff just getting annoyed in the queue behind him. Like, hurry up! Who's who's brought this kid? Who's wasting time? Who's wasting Alan's time with this kid? But that would have been the highlight for Alan talking to this little kid about which biscuits he preferred.
0: Yeah, and he was
1: there for you know five minutes or something, and the kid's eyes were like saucers and i know what it's like to be that kid
0: genuinely next time i talk to alan i'm gonna just talk about my favorite biscuits i love biscuits (laughs) that's a hundred in in similar i don't care if it's a kid i'm I'm up for that conversation as a grown-up yeah but
1: yeah it does give you growing up with them it does give you a different view on them and as soon as you see a kid in the queue you go i know what it's like to be you and you will remember this yeah because how can you be a kid and not remember alan you know, he's well, a
0: wizard. Well, meeting Alan as a as a grown up, he taught me loads about myself instantly because I've always felt I'm fairly sceptical. I don't believe in much spiritual stuff or magic stuff. I believe everything Alan is saying about magic <laughs> and everything in his <laughs> eyes when he's talking about magic and what he means by magic and yeah, all of this kind of thing. Instantly, as as soon as I was in his living room, ch- ch- chatting to him, I was just like, yeah. Yeah, I was worried going in and thinking, like there's a few different people I've had on, um, an MMA f- fighter who's a good friend of mine, Dan Hardy, who's really into crystals and stuff. And I was like, how am I going to navigate this conversation? Because <laughs> I clearly think it's all bollocks, but I don't want to be rude, but he is a mate. And yeah. that, But with Alan, that wasn't, I went in with that issue. I was like, oh, I didn't have to fake or pretend anything. It was just like, wow, you're completely right.
1: Did you ever look at his bathroom when you were there?
0: yes. Yes.
1: The thing I remember from his bathroom from being a kid was the number of shampoo bottles yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. oh my
0: my introduction to Alan Moore could not have been more more magical, and I'm sure I've told this, but it has it's been a while, so I'll, I'll go over it again. But I'd met him at, at a show I did with Robin Ince, and I think I think it's Amber who was a fan. His daughter was a fan of, of my music, so he was kind of aware of me, and I did some spoken word and that, and he was into it, and I was just kind of like. Alan Moore's, like, like, being nice to me. So I hit Robin up and said, could you put me in touch, like, with Alan? I'm starting this podcast. It was, it was like, Alan was, like, the first or second guest I had on the podcast. Oh, wow. I was like, I'm starting this podcast. I'd love to have Alan Moore on. And he said, all right, I'll get in contact and I'll I'll let you know because he doesn't have email and all this kind of thing. And Robin came back and said, I've spoken to Alan. Here's his home phone number. Ring him at 6.30 on Tuesday um don't ring earlier because he's having his bath but he will have finished his bath and he'll be relaxed and he'll be able to to have a chat so again imagine the excitement of that and particularly again oh that's the whole day ruined pacing the house or being someone who grew up in the era of ringing a girl on the landline to try it like i was straight back to that i'm like okay just do it it's gonna be fine just play it cool all right alan al all right hey man hey it's Pip It's do I go formal just the nerves of it all and then he was just ah Pip and just the loveliest friendliest guy and we lined yeah. up yeah a visit and yeah that's what he's like
1: I, I still, character. I still get like that when I have to phone people I think the worst one I had recently and I say recently it was five years ago but it was still traumatic to me I had to call John Carpenter for an interview and the whole it was like i had to call him at 8 p.m or something but that Mm -hmm. was the whole day ruined he has his bath
0: at seven (laughs) 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 so he mostly spent it
1: bitching about clint eastwood so uh he wasn't too relaxed
0: i love it and again it's a really good point there because i forget the view that a lot of the comic book world has of alan as this grumpy old man who lives in the woods kind of thing and he's again the happiest friendliest nicest do dimensional
1: They have the same view of my dad as well yeah. as as grumpy and scottish and he is all of those things but he's very <laughs> he's very approachable and he's one of the sweetest men on earth and um just seeing how nervous people would get to <clears throat> when they were about to line up and speak to neil or alan or dad you want to shake him and go they're just guys
2: yeah
0: <laughs> nice well, ones uh, well let's talk a little bit about your your dad because it's Key in the subject of the book, I guess. The, the book is called "All the Living and the Dead." I'm a couple of chapters in, and it is just blowing me away. There's so much that I want to talk about, and so many things that have surprised me as someone who, as we again, another thing that we've connected over in the past and talked about is we've both grown up in families that are quite comfortable talking about death, quite comfortable with death being around. Mm-hmm. There's a few things early on already that you know seemingly caught you catch you off guard a bit and caught me off guard a bit. Because again, it's like, ah, it's death. We're the kind of people who it's not a big deal. And then instantly, oh, it's a a massive deal. But you mentioned early on that the kind of the shadow of death loomed early on partly because of your dad, because he was illustrating from hell with Alan Moore and therefore was not only drawing, having to draw a lot of dead bodies, was having to have a lot of reference pieces a lot of just yeah a lot of death around the house and you'd regularly be around that and see that and have a look and study that yourself
1: yeah i'm not sure many people grow up with autopsy photographs pinned to the walls but yeah that that was all (laughs) around his drawing board it was all the 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 five women from from hell all of their autopsy photographs and sometimes pictures of the the actual scenes where they were found which which were mostly just black and inky but Mm -hmm. you could see enough to go what's going on here and I just wanted to know more of what was happening I I didn't find them frightening because they were something so alien to me that it couldn't be frightening it wasn't like you know they were different to zombies in films zombies zombies are still recognizable as living people But the scene of Mary Kelly's death, just the amount of blood, it was just so, so different that you want to, I wanted to know what was, what was going on. And um, so I think that's where it started. But I kind of figured that out later as I, it was while I was writing the book that I thought maybe that was it because I was trying to figure out why I wanted to write a book about death, mostly because people kept asking me, why do you want to do this? And I just can't understand why anyone wouldn't find death fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I said I was writing a book about death, what I found interesting was that people would assume I was writing about dying or I was writing about grief. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to write about was the bit in the middle because I think dying and grief are about living people and the dead kind of get forgotten in all of that. Yeah. So after the dying, the dead body disappears somewhere and other people look after that. So I wanted to know, what was happening there and i could see that in um the autopsy pictures because somebody stitched up those women somebody did that
0: well that's the thing again early on you 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 drop just the stat of around 55.4 million people die every year which seems overwhelming as it is and then bring to the fore the fact that people deal with that Mm -hmm. someone takes the those bodies away someone cleans them up someone does all these other things and these people are completely forgotten and overlooked as a as a profession or hidden not even forgotten or overlooked like intentionally hidden for 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 us kind of thing and as, as soon as that line was kind of in I was like yep Hundred percent in. Let's <laughs> let's do this. I need to know who these 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 w- weirdos are, and they're not weirdos, to be clear. I've already, I've already. Oh, some of them are weirdos.
1: Like, oh, a few weirdos. <laughs> the ones in my book, not so much. But yeah.
0: Yeah, um, but so how has it been writing it? I'm kind of going back and forth a bit, but I remember you talking about this. What feels like a long time ago. <laughs> so I'd imagine for you, and I remember at the time saying, oh, oh when it's." done or when you get out you should come on the podcast and again that that feels like reasonably early days of the podcast so
1: well I was two years late with my manuscript (laughs) so that might have something to do with it
0: so yeah Yeah. how's how's that been and how how long a process has it been because again it's a subject that you don't want to do half-heartedly as such you want to make sure you're you're covering it properly and again for those to to explain ahead of time you go and visit a lot of different people a lot of different jobs and, and roles all in the kind of oh yeah all under the shadow of death as such
1: yeah well a lot of a lot of time was in the beginning just finding people who would talk to me because they are hidden mm-hmm. partially by themselves because you know the various tabloids when they get a chance will write something salacious and horrible about the death industry that they don't understand and they will get it all factually incorrect Mm -hmm. um so it's it's a very closed industry so i had to go through so many layers of character reference and you know i'd interview one person and then i'd say can you put me in touch with an embalmer because you now know what i'm like you now know that i'm not like the other guys like you thought i was going to be and once i got in i found that people were really open and um, they would invite me into their workplaces that I thought it would take a little more effort to get into. Mm. But they were really open. And something on that is that I don't think I would be able to do the book now because of COVID. I would not be allowed to be yeah. in mortuaries. There's yeah. no way I'd be able to. There's in, in one of the early chapters, I helped dress a dead man for his coffin. Mm. And we were wearing gloves and aprons, but it wasn't a case of this might be an infectious person. We were just dressing a dead man. But I don't think there's any way I would be let in now. Mm. And so in a way, this book is kind of a weird snapshot of the before times, even as a journalist. Yeah, and then and then on that as well, I found that people were getting sick and had to quit their job or they died. It it really felt like when I was writing it, the Langoliers were running behind me and eating everything up.
2: Yeah, like if
1: I if I slowed down even a bit, I wouldn't get it done. Yeah, and I was very very lucky in that I got all of my reporting done just before the first lockdown. So it really was a case of just sitting down and writing it. Yeah. And I've I've seen so many uh, journalist friends get book deals and then not be able to do the work that they need to do in order to have the stuff to write. Yeah. So the writing, I keep thinking about how lucky I was in terms of the people tomed, I found. Perfectly timed, really,
0: right in that, that, that respect I, as well. It was, and it also feels it also feels that that the some of the ease of getting in there, like the speed of it was maybe beneficial as well because it meant you didn't have time to overthink it or over prepare or know what you're going to be seeing it feels like you're caught off guard a lot because it is that you've kind of said asked a question not really expecting anything and they've said are you around next week or tomorrow (laughs) you can come and help dress this body like yep yeah (laughs) I was expecting to hit five more walls before I get to that I know I know
1: yeah a lot of this caught me off guard. A lot of this book, and um, I don't know where you're up to, but there's some there's some stuff that really catches me off guard to the point where I just I know I don't leave the house anyway, but I genuinely mm. like didn't get out of bed for a few weeks. Well, yeah. And um, but I'm never one of those people who writes the story before they leave the house and mm-hmm. then just asks the person for some quotes to fit into yeah, the thing to put it together. Yeah, I never like that. So I I went in thinking there's some stuff about death, the industry of death that we don't know about or the things I've read. Because You know, when you know a, a subject very deeply and then you see someone else write about it, you go, well, you've got that wrong and you've got that wrong. So I went in assuming that everything I knew was bullshit mm. and I wanted to see what it was like with my own eyes, be a proper reporter, go in and report. And that meant that I was open to everything. And there were you know, I had a plan of who, which kind of jobs I wanted to put in the book. Um, I had a big board, like, like I was solving a murder. I had index yeah. cards. I had bits Amazing. of ribbon. I had all of that stuff. They're still up in, the, in, in my office, but um, mm-hmm. I changed direction a few times. And I went, I don't want to interview a palliative care doctor, partly because there are lots of excellent books by palliative care doctors that have mm-hmm. been written already. I don't want to do that. I want to focus on people who are purely working with the body, not the pe- people who are around the dying. I think that's a different realm. But also, I wanted to talk to people who hadn't spoken to a journalist before, um, um. who didn't have their their answers ready. Yeah. because I think they're always and their the character
0: most... almost. You you yeah. have a media character as such to go. Here's here's my story.
1: They haven't been polished by the yeah. the PR people. They like I always think speaking to regular people they're more open. They're not as closed off as like speaking to a Hollywood actor about something. Yeah. And so there are people in this book, well, people I interviewed for this book who didn't make it in. Like I, I interviewed Sue black, who is one of my personal heroes. She's um, she worked in um, the identification of mass graves in Kosovo. Wow. She has done incredible work in identifying. She, she uses her knowledge of veins to identify hands in child pornography so that people get arrested and go wow. to jail. She is super heroic. Yeah. But since I interviewed her, she went on to write her own memoir and I thought, well, Sue can tell her story better than I can tell it. Yeah. So I'll leave Sue. She's, you know, her story gave me a great background and information to go and interview another mass fatality investigator. Mm-hmm. So it it kind of it was a strange process writing it. And it didn't all come together until the very end. Like, I do get to a point at the end. Like, there's, it's not just here's another person, here's another person. Mm-hmm. I do get to a point. But it took so much sitting around looking like I was doing nothing to yeah. get to that point. Yeah. And um, I do feel like I am advocating for something at the end. Yeah. And it's not just presenting something it is saying we are fucked up in a certain way and we could fix it by doing this yeah. um so I do hope that it ends up being a book that changes something but it was a strange one to write and yeah. <laughs> just and like people are saying so what are you doing next and it's like I am still in my head doing this book <laughs> I am still recovering, recovering from yeah. this book well, um I need a I need a sit down
0: a w- a one of my favorite things when reading it is spotting the moments that you don't realise how different your either upbringing or approach <laughs> to death is to other people. And again, it's it's something that we've discussed a like lot. I had it a lot when my albums came out and everyone thought they were really morbid. And I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't know this isn't the stuff that we talk about. It was a, a genuine surprise. But there's a bit where you're talking about a, a Lambeth's Cemetery and you compare it to like the big 7 mm-hmm. um like other people don't have a big seven c- cemeteries. Hayley. <laughs> that's, that, that's not what like a generally like, You know, know the main ones in, you know the, the main London cemeteries, the best. But ones. you know them. Yes, you of know course, them. Of course, that's it. I was reading. I was I've like, written like, it yes, for people like you. This is brilliant. This is uh, it's such a great sh- shorthand there that you're like, yep. <laughs> you know, it's not um, like though all the ones you all know about it's a bit more personal all right i see
1: (laughs) i i i was deliberate in that in that i didn't want to over explain everything for for everybody like there's enough information there for you to go what are these seven i'll go look them up but Hmm. i'm not gonna talk down to you like like i i don't know i think there were many many points and these were pointed out by my editor where things could have been explained more and i deliberately didn't yeah so i give you enough to assume that you know which page we're
0: on and then yeah. I move on I, I love <laughs> and it. and that was and one of them <laughs> there's a, a couple of things also that jump out again early on I'm like three chapters in um but again it's really interesting to hear that you don't g- go in with a, a, a plan of what you're already going to write and things like that because that comes across because the nature of this this subject although there's specific people you're talking to and specific stories you're telling and investigating as such there's also it lends itself to so many small moments that just catch you off guard and are are beautiful and one that I I noted was the body collector who is also a firefighter and he sees it as he's he's going back for the ones he couldn't save and it's just a small throwaway moment that just I sat on for about (laughs) 10 minutes I always go for a walk and read and I just kind of paused on that because it was like oh man that guy's that that the simplicity of that but the the depth of that is astounding and that's kind of gonna be so many of the people that you know you pass by in that job let alone the ones that are leading it or you're talking to
1: yeah and i found that again and again each person i talk to has something like that, something mm. where you go, that's massive. And you've just said it to me as a little throwaway thing. Yeah. And I think that's another reason why I like interviewing normal people. And I think it's very important to go to their job and see for your own eyes. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, I go and, I go and hang out with two gravediggers in Arnus Vale Cemetery in Bristol, um, Mike and Bob. Very Bristolian very sweet guys. And uh, I, so he was showing me this grave. He'd, Mike was showing me this grave he'd dug. And I noticed that there was a little pot beside it. It was a little, it was urn shaped, but it wasn't an urn. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of battered, had lots of fingerprints on it. And, he, and I said, what's that? And, you know, he'd been telling me things like, oh, the, the grave's got to be this many feet long and this many feet deep and, you know, telling me how to dig a grave. But it was this other thing that he hadn't mentioned. That I said, what's that? What's that? and he opened it it had a cork in it and it was full of soil but i noticed that it was it wasn't the same sort of soil that had come out of the grave he was showing me which mm. was clay it was very wet um you know there were big chunks of clay pushed to the side of the hole i looked at it and it like this soil was not only dry but it was finer it looked really really soft and i said he, he, he goes, this is the soil for the vicar to throw on the coffin, you know, when he's doing the ashes to ashes, dust right. to dust bit. I said, but did you get that out of this hole? He goes, oh, no, no, no. I collect these from my garden. They're mole hills, And he collects them because the, the finer soil that's kicked up by the feet of moles lands softer on the, the lid of the coffin than a lump of clay. And he wouldn't have mentioned that if I hadn't wow. said, what's that? Because yeah. in his head, that's not interesting. No. That's just what he does. But he thinks, because if you throw a lump of clay on the lid of a coffin, then you hear the the, the emptiness of a coffin. You know, yeah. there's a person in that, that, but there's still that hollow noise. Yeah. yeah. And everyone would like, that's a sickening noise when somebody you know is in that coffin. And so he had these molehills in this little pot. I love it. And, it was, and I thought about it for weeks. And, you know, everybody in the book has a little something like that, that they wouldn't have mentioned if I was just doing a Zoom interview with them or something. Yeah. It'll be something in, you know, behind them in the office. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. And they go, oh, this. I didn't know you'd be interested in this. Yeah. Of course I'm interested in that. That says who you are and what you think about this job.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I love it, and and again, early on, it kind of obviously there's a lot of ju- of journey to come, but early on, you kind of address that part of the reason for this. Again, it isn't just a oh oh let's let's go and talk to the people who do these weird jobs, this yeah. this spooky, <laughs> strange humans. It could um, have been that, yeah, but it's it's also looking at. I said the fact that they're hidden and 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 ignored, and and the way we are with death. And with mourning as a society overall, again, I think both of our, our upbringings have been slightly aside from that. But um, the funeral director you talked to initially, her, her s- s- saying the first dead dead body you see sh- shouldn't be someone you love, and the idea of s- separating the shock of seeing a dead body or, sh- or the, sh- the shock of seeing death from the shock of grief is kind of was kind of a key part of you going on this journey as such because yeah. they're not the same thing they're two different things so uh,
1: isn't that an amazing thought yeah i had i had never had it and she yeah. so she said that uh, the first dead body you see should not be someone you love and i had never thought that you can separate that fact because you know dead bodies aren't easy to come by they're not yeah. just hanging around so the ones you do see end up being someone you love and if we can separate that, if we can become more comfortable with being around dead bodies, then when you do see the body of someone you love, I think that would be a completely different situation. And I think it would help in your grief to be able to be present in the room rather than being, you know, internally freaking out that this is a dead body. This is the big, you know, scary dead body that we see in movies and, and, and all of that. I think it's, I really think that she is onto something. She's Poppy She's. A funeral director in South London, and that was a seed that was uh, that I carried through the whole the whole book because I thought she's right, and I'm going to see, I, and and I think I think it's amazing because she, because she gave me the gift of seeing a dead body that was not someone I loved. I, I got mm-hmm. to see dead bodies that were complete strangers, and before this, I had never seen a dead body before, which was part of my fascination with it. Yeah. Of course, you're going to be fascinated with the thing that is always hidden from you, mm. and. I still find dead bodies fascinating and everything that they do, but I don't think they should be hidden because it, seeing them and being around them tells you so much about people.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, there's someone I interview towards the middle of the book. She's a, a Lara who does autopsies and uh, she doesn't, she's a anatomical pathology technologist. So she does all the practical work of taking the body apart. So the pathologist can look at things and try right. and find the manner of death. So she does a lot of the admin as well. So you know these these people are the first to know the identities of missing people or people mm-hmm. in terrorist incidents. And when I was talking to her after we had been in the mortuary, uh, she was talking about the the number of forgotten people that she sees come through her mortuary all the time.
2: Yeah.
1: Or the people who you know don't don't get noticed. So she sees, you know, repeated mother's names on miscarriages. And so she knows that this woman is going through these things. And that is something we don't talk about in regular life. So she knows what's going on with this woman more than probably many of her friends. And Lara also sees the, you know, the, the the people who aren't identified, who then sit in her fridges for weeks while they try and find a name. Hmm. And, She was saying that what she wants to come from, you know, when she dies, she just doesn't want to be one of the forgotten people that she wants someone to notice. And I thought that spoke to what she does as a job as well, because a lot of what she does doesn't get noticed. Yeah. The fact that, you know, she's doing the admin, she's remembering names, she's remembering things, she's noticing things, she's noticing like scars on a body that might have, you know be some clue Mm. as to why a person has died so her job is noticing things and i thought that it was interesting that all she wanted was a death where she was noticed that it was that she was missing yeah Yeah. Uh, because she sees it all the time where people are missing and no one notices
0: yeah it's it's those small personal things that again already just seem so overwhelming in a in a way like uh, mentioned early on the number of 55 0.4 million deaths which seems so huge and overwhelming but what felt more overwhelming was you being in that room with nine or ten I think it was a handful of 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 dead dead bodies but they're not dead bodies they're people (laughs) who've lived exactly lives each one has had so many If, if you think about all that happened on all that you thought and felt on your way to that 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 day they've had these lifetimes of all of this and they're all in this in this one room and all there to be yeah
1: yeah yeah i i quote david lynch because i, I don't know if you saw the documentary the art life but no, he was he was talking about how when he was a young art student in philadelphia he had met the mortuary manager in the diner you know something that would happen to david lynch and he asked if he could Considered. see it
2: yes and
1: yes. um and, and the mortuary manager goes, "Of course, but you know, come at midnight when no one's around." and so he let him in, and he, he let him into this uh this room, which had uh you know a wall of fridges, which is what lots of mortuaries have, and the thing that struck David Lynch, and it it meant something more to me now i I remembered him saying it, but standing in there, I, I remembered him, even though he couldn't see the bodies, the fridges were shut. It was the idea that all of these people had lived all of these lives and they were all ending in the one place. Yeah. And it's, you know, you, you hear David Lynch say that, and of course he would. But then when I was in the mortuary and the fridge door opens and you see all the heads resting on pillows, you know, there, were, there was a guy in a raster cap. You know, there was a woman who'd clearly had her hair recently done. There were all mm-hmm. of these different heads and um, you know, lots of different people lots of different lives and it's a multicultural south london area so you get all of these people and i just found it i found it fascinating that they all end up here no matter what you do yeah you're going to end up there
0: yeah yeah no matter what you do in your life or that week or that day (laughs) like again there was things like someone having new shoes or something or again a new a new haircut W- w- would imply you didn't know this was, yeah, about to be over. Yeah, it's 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 astounding. And th- the thing that again I liked was that you weren't kind of invited in there as a kind of <laughs> a creepy onlooker kind of thing. It was like, <laughs> no, if you want to see this, you need to be helping. This needs to be because yep. it's a respectful thing. So you were there t- to help. So you s- suddenly found yourself literally holding the hands of. And looking into the eyes of the dead Mm -hmm. which again it's kind of unimaginable it's the kind of thing that if it was me i think in the week leading up i'd be thinking oh this is going to be cool and it's not a big deal and then when (laughs) it actually happens it would be like oh this isn't you know this isn't what i thought at all exactly have you seen a dead body no no i haven't
1: that's crazy isn't it Mm. and if you if you wanted to see one you'd have to go out of your way
0: yeah it it is a cultural thing though right like so many parts of asia the dead are part of their Mm -hmm. society and culture like like it's they're displayed their death is washed by family yeah yeah, exactly and at the riverside like not privately like he Mm -hmm. he, like it's it's a day-to-day thing because it is a day-to-day thing yeah it's so strange how our society is so it's again it's what's so fascinating about this subject and book i said uh, when i knew you were writing a book about death my first thought was (laughs) of course you are and (laughs) and it wasn't until i started to read what it's actually about that i was like oh wow that's yeah Mm. it is so bizarre how we are
1: i'm so glad that i wasn't just left as an onlooker and that i was invited to interact with the body and you know i was helping him get dressed which it's, it's actually really sweet and really special. And um, I saw a documentary on Amy Winehouse about six months ago, and um, her best friends were talking about how they had dressed her for her funeral right. beforehand. Yeah. And I saw some people on Twitter saying, Ugh, you know, why would you do that? You know, leave it for the people who are being paid to do it. But I completely understand. Like
2: yeah.
1: some designer had given her a leopard print dress and her friends had put her in it and – when they that were sounds talking beautiful about it, that sounds like is, an amazing thing it is when they were talking about it they had tears in their eyes and I knew you know obviously I wasn't dressing my best friend but mm. the idea of being the last people to dress this person and be with this person it like you feel honoured to be there
0: well you talking about that at the end of of, of that experience genuinely brought a tear to my eye because again you think of it as so <laughs> or in, you can think of, of it as so cl- clinical and stuff and then it was that realisation that it's it's so human and particularly in in Poppy's um place it is so it's the way you describe it again you it's not what you would expect it's she's intentionally no. m- m- made it a warm and positive and Yeah. Well, this was another thing that
1: Poppy said that blew my mind. She said that she wished that she could bring children into her mortuary to show Mm -hmm. them what death looks like before they have to face it themselves. Yeah. Because you don't, you know, a a child may lose a parent. You don't know when they're going to have to face death. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you can do it, it would be a good idea. And I genuinely wonder what I would be like if I had met her as a kid when all of these questions were coming up in my head. Because we talk about. Death being a taboo, like sex. But I went to a Catholic school and we had lessons about what sex was. We -hmm. had drawings of dicks and vaginas. But Mm
2: -hmm.
1: as for death, we had a a priest, a Catholic priest, telling us that you go to heaven. And I was like, yeah, but what happens? What happens to the body? And I even had questions about, you know, Jesus, because he was left in the tomb, you know, when the stone rolled back. What color was he? Was he yeah. Was he rotten? Was he a zombie? Saying. Like I had all of these questions, and the priest didn't want to answer them, and I don't think he liked me very much because I kept asking them. <laughs> but I think there is you know we talk about sex and death being the great taboos, but I think there's more about sex everywhere. We, death l- is everywhere in films and, and everything, but not real death.
0: I love Not, the fact that you're potentially the only person who had more drawings of death around you as a child than drawings of dicks. <laughs> as, in, 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 I had in, dicks in, as well. There's lots of dicks in From Hell. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's loads I want to talk about, but we're going to run out of time. But you kind of, you move from the really deeply emotional to the more cl- cl- clinical as you go on to talk about um, bodies donated for mm. medical st- st- study and for science and one of the things that got me early on in that was the kind of checklist to kind of to <laughs> to get through and get in because in my mind it's kind of a you get what you're given and, and you're grateful but it's, yeah. it's not because for the actual st- study there is a lot of specifics and as you touched upon in the situation we're in now even more so disease and 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 stuff that could put the people who are studying it at risk in some yeah. way and again either side of, of the weight spectrum being no good because if there's no if there's not enough muscle and stuff to cut through and study, it's one thing, but if there's too much fat and it's rotting and whatever else, then that's another thing. So, yeah, it was amazing kind of hearing that and also the fact that the guy you spoke to, is <laughs> I spoke about with TV series being a completionist earlier, but he's very much all or nothing... You have to have all your bits in there. He's he's not up for this kind of you, yeah. I'll give you a few yeah. bits. No, nope, I'm not interested because again, it's it's for students to be able to. Yeah, know, and they need to, to, to no they longer.
1: need to see a body that works before they are presented with a body that doesn't in real life, so yeah. they can figure it out. How did you do on the checklist? Do you think you'd make it in?
0: I think I'd do all right. You know, yeah. I've, 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 <laughs> I look after myself
1: dominoes uh fanaticism (laughs) wasn't a uh criteria that would get you i
0: mean it'd have more hair than he could deal with so (laughs) it'd it'd be an abundance there
1: you'd be interesting because of your tattoos yeah he said to me that he leaves all the tattoos on obviously removing them would, would be weird but Most of the bodies he gets don't have tattoos because he's mostly getting old people. But Mm. that will change because tattoos, you know, so many people have tattoos. But something, what I liked about Terry, the guy who is in charge of all the the body donations, was the the fact that when bodies come in and they've got their nails painted, he used to remove the nail polish just like he used to shave their heads Mm -hmm. because it was all part of um anonymizing them because his biggest worry is that someone will recognize the cadaver mm-hmm. that has been slid in front of them yeah. so he would remove the nail polish but then he said he heard a student talking about the fact that the nail polish that he had forgotten to remove was the was the thing that humanized this body and it turned it, it changed the whole scenario for her because right, wow. she wasn't just working on a, a human body she was working on a person and so now he always leaves the nail polish on even if they're like granddads who've clearly had their nail polish done by little kids mm. he's leaving it all on I love that. but he'll shave their hair yeah I, 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 it's again it's like the mole hills it's yeah. little details you go you wouldn't have told me that on the phone if i hadn't asked about her nails
0: yeah yeah i love that well i mean always is the case with subjects I, I like this the historical approach is always a bizarre read as well and you drop like bits of, of that in a long way and the bit that kind of <laughs> b- b- blew my mind that in kind of the mid 1500s four bodies were were kind of authorized to be dissected <laughs> per year that was it and it's like that's yeah. it and uh, just imagining the kind of the planning and theories and that building up to when you get to dissect a body and then you and cut like, it open and you go oh no we we're wrong and having to wait again <laughs> until like another like, oh no <laughs> turns out there's all it's completely different to what we thought was in there um and all that kind of stuff was mind-blowing and the fact that it became kind of a punishment like it was added to kind of inst- instead of being hanged drawn and quartered it was you'll be dissected in public as an embarrassment thing but also as a this gives us some some something to study and help our understanding but the best part of that was the first kind of inadverted instances of 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 body donation because there would be criminals who hadn't been sentenced to be dissected (laughs) who would sell their Body so that they could have a nice s- suit or whatever to wear, but once they've died, someone can can dissect them, and that's again, yeah. absolutely fascinating.
1: The history of body donation is fascinating, and um, there's a book called "Death, Dissection, and the Destitute" by Ruth Richardson, which mm. goes into that in in great detail. Yes. But um, yeah, it's it's it was the fact that they were only allowing four bodies, and then later <laughs> six. You can see that's exactly mad. why body snatchers arrived yeah. because it's like you know it's like the legalization of drugs
0: and while we had had so many stupid ideas and also yeah had so many stupid ideas of how everything works and medicine and that because <laughs> it's like we're doing four a year but yeah body snatchers yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah but if if you won't provide it people will find them yeah because they were they were dissecting pigs and everything but pigs can't tell you everything about no. humans so they had to find them it's it's a horrible horrible history, but where would we be without them? And I I find it really interesting that, you know, doctors and surgeons and things, we we know all of their names, but the people who actually showed us what was in a dead body, we don't know their names. They're Mm. all anonymous. And um, it was only when I was researching all of that, that I really, I think I knew it, but I only consciously realized it, that all of those pathology museums that I love so much, like in the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh or in the Hunterian Museum in London, all of the body pieces in there are probably body snatched. We don't wow, know yeah, who they come course. from, but that's he, they were. John Hunter was filling his museum at the time when body snatching was happening. Yeah, And yeah, we don't now, know who those people were. The,
0: the, the, that's actually one of the things that came to mind as I was reading it or, or reading so far, uh, which I'd forgotten. Were you surprised at how different it felt? Because I'm, I'm someone as well who l- loves going in the Hunterian and all these other places and looking at all these amazing things. And it is always powerful, but like, I'm not saying I'm just going in and going, oh, oh look at that baby in a jar or, or whatever. Yeah. It is genuinely moving and powerful, but it, it is also, it's not like I'll pop in because I'm there. It's not like it's this big planned yeah. thing. i oh, I'm passing, I'll go and have a bit of a, a a browse again it's why I think that got me so emotionally at the end of that for the that first visit was as like, oh man this is so different from from that yeah you know from seeing you've seen loads of dead dead bodies but not yeah
1: yeah it is different and and obviously there's the story of the the Irish giant in there who's the big skeleton in the in the box who all he wanted was to not end up in that museum and he did because John Hunter bribed the, the Undertaker and wow. they filled his coffin with stones and, and stole his body. But yeah, it does change everything. I, writing this book has made me um, an interesting dinner guest because <laughs> uh, when people ask what I've been up to, I, I just have to tell them the truth because I've either been at home doing nothing or yeah. I've been thinking about or seeing dead bodies. And in fact, imagine um, all
0: these stories. As, uh, uh, as you're you're whipping your own bottle of ranch sauce out your bag as well,
1: <laughs> exactly. I remember, I, <laughs> I remember. Um, I was telling I was telling Neil Gaiman about something that had happened in the book that, that you haven't seen yet, so I won't do any spoilers. But I was right. we were in a Chinese restaurant, and I was telling him about it. And I don't know, do you know the story of Neil Scary Trousers Gaiman?
0: No, about I do
1: not. <laughs> this, So years and years ago,
0: the first time I met Neil, um, he was dragging me on stage to do the time warp of course he was with amanda and with richard o'brien and with, with all of this that was my first kind of introduction and it's been it's Matt's been a joy right. since then yeah
1: <laughs> but um so years and years ago neil was having dinner with alan moore mm-hmm. and alan was explaining you know what he'd just written and he had just written the 50 page or whatever it is sequence of mary kelly's death and he was explaining the um you know the the various bits that were removed from her, and you know, this was this came out and that came out. And it was a very bloody story. And Neil, although he is very good at writing horror, so this sort of doesn't make any sense. He's very good at writing horror. Um, He gets into a a a groove and is detached enough to just write horrible things. Mm -hmm. I've I've read Neil Gaiman's stories and I've gone only very strange people could write this. And, and he is one of them. But for some reason, hearing stories sets him off. And so Alan was in the middle of this story about Mary Kelly's murder. And Neil said, I just, I just have to go outside. And as he was getting up to go sit on the pavement and compose himself, Alan goes, well, there he goes, Neil's scary trousers Gaiman. And I have known that story for as long as I can remember. <laughs> but I experienced Neil's scary trousers Gaiman in a Chinese restaurant, when I was explaining something that had happened in the book that was horrific and um, very graphic. And Neil said, stop. And I went, okay, but I'll just finish this bit. And he goes, no, no, no stop. I went, oh, but there's like two more sentences of what happened. And then he got up and he went downstairs into the bathroom and he laid on the bathroom floor, trying not to faint. So Amazing. that was Neil's scary trousers <laughs> That's gaming.
0: That's so good yeah you wouldn't expect it you really no wouldn't expect it. no
1: but he's got a button he's got a button that makes him woozy and i hit it just telling him what had happened that day in my life
0: i love it well i'll i'll, I'll start to wrap things up here as said i recommend everyone get all the living and the dead immediately and see if it any point makes them have to lay down to uh, <laughs> stop from fainting but before we go other things, um, <laughs> a must-watch <laughs> with my guy, Nihal. You do that, that's, that's... I every do that week, every right? Monday. Oh, yeah, yeah, every
1: Monday I talk about TV on Channel uh, on, on BBC Five Live with yeah. Nihal, Arthur Naika, and that's what I'm doing. And, you know, the rest of the time is me recovering from this, figuring out what I'm going to write next. Yeah, I do magazines, you know, like yeah. Potter.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the most ex- exciting part and the last part of my research was... Um, and this part of this uh, was amusing me early on because we kept referring to your dad but not saying who your dad was i i looked you up and you're on one of those dumb websites that just kind of collate stuff and it's kind of all written Uh (laughs) by an ai so i'm going to give you some facts about yourself that you may or may not know although you've recently got into gardening so the first one you might know um (laughs) Your birth flower is sweet pea or daisy. Is it? Yep. Your birth stone is diamond. Your life path number is five. You were born in the year of the tiger, but get this. Hayley Campbell's father's name is under review and and mother unknown at this time. (laughs) So that's so much wonderful information. And also, we're currently in the process of confirming the details of Hayley Campbell's height, weight, and other stats. So am I. <laughs> exactly. Weight is up and down. <laughs> it just blew me away that it's like, clearly, again, I'd, I've heard someone else talk on a podcast about those those sites that kind of estimate your, your worth, like your net yeah. worth and stuff, and how it's all just AI, and it's all these jumbled sentences that it's kind of putting together. But I'm not really... And looked into one, and the fact that your father's name is unknown, and then, and then I was laughing early on as we kept saying, and ob- obviously your dad was also part of it, and your dad, <laughs> and never he's under review, under exactly review. Exactly, under have reviewed. you looked up yourself? I haven't, I haven't yet. I'll have well, to I'm going to go do them. that now. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, and I'm glad we got to do this at last. Yeah, me it's too. Been finally, joy.
1: It's been years in the making, and all I had to do was write a massive book. Yeah, we got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction
2: Pieces.
0: There we go. That was Haley Campbell. Um, I told you you'd enjoy that one, right? If you've got to this point, you're going to be buzzing because it was such a strong episode. I really think it's one of my f- f- favourites. And despite people saying I say that all the time, I don't. If you actually check back, it's very selective. I love all the conversations, but I think the last one that I said was one of my absolute favourites was the Stephen Fry one, which was a month or so ago, and it was with Stephen fucking Fry. Of course it was one of my favourites. But yeah, all the living and the dead is out now. Order it, get it in your eyes, in your ears, in whatever orifice you wish to ingest it. I'll be back next week with more wonderful guests. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. And try your best to stay on the living side of this uh, strange path that we walk. Ta-ta!